Hey there. Thanks for joining me on Comedy Masterclass, where I interview creators about the craft of writing comedy. Today, I am super happy to have Kevin Tomlinson with me, who is a theatre maker and co-founder of Kapow Theatre Company. So I first came to Kevin's work through taking a couple of his really super fun and practical workshops and also seeing live improv Kapow shows, which are a true delight. But Kevin, that was quite a while ago, and you are a very creative, very productive person. So what else would you like people to know about you and your work as it relates to comedy? Oh gosh, um, I suppose I suppose I fell into comedy by accident because, well, I, like a lot of people, I like doing straight acting as well. But nine times out of ten, when I was on stage, just acting, kind of in straight plays, people would end up laughing, which um, isn't great if you're doing Hamlet or something. Not that I ever got <laughs> to, got to play Hamlet, but um, at school I often got cast in the funny roles, not through any, just because people found me funny. I suppose it's because I'm short and. I got bullied a lot at school and so you learn to be a bit goofy to kind of mm. try and avoid getting punched and so um yeah I kind of fell into it by accident really but also it's immense fun isn't it to hear the audience laugh you get the instant gratification so um but in recent years I've sort of spent 50% of the time doing non-comic work so mm. I've just finished a very dark psychological thriller in London um directing it and appearing in that and I was getting a thrill from how quiet can you make the audience can you, mm. can you create work that's so good that nobody wants to move or rustle? And I was getting a real thrill and kick from that, so which was nice. Um, but I'm so ready to go back to comedy after a month of that because it is lovely to just and just hear people laughing and just giving them a good time, especially in these crazy times with you know Ukraine, Russia, and post lockdown. I'm still feeling the effects of that, even though it's been a while now since the lockdown. I still feel many people are like suffering from slight post traumatic stress from it. We were so bombarded with hideous death counts every day and images and you know reports coming out now that the government were worried that we were being too blasé in this country and lots of internal memos between government officials and saying people are not taking this seriously enough. We've got to emotionally get them more emotionally engaged by basically scaring them into <laughs> lockdown. And so I think they did a bit overkill with the bombarding of images and messages. And I do worry about the mental health of everyone. I was going to say mm -hmm. young people of today, but everyone, um, what effect that had on us. And so I, I want to create theatre that combats the sense of loneliness or fear that was mm. induced by lockdown. Um, so yeah, blimey, it's gone very heavy very quickly. Oh no! <laughs> and I, the thing is, um, on this show, people who've listened to it before will know that although um, there's a lens on comedy, I particularly love comedy that draws in so many more emotions. And lots of people have been on the show actually are interested in the whole spectrum, but that comedy plays you know a part in that mm. rather than something that's just all about the gags. So I love mm. that. And for example, your um, Seven Ages show. I think is super interesting for the way that it brings in um, like the scope of a life. <laughs> Again, we're getting really big and heavy straight away, <laughs> but it's also so fun. So when I've seen clips of it online, obviously the, the camera's pointed at you in the stage, but the audience is laughing uproariously. And mm. yet there's also really incredibly poignant scenes. So I wonder actually if you wouldn't mind um, talking a little bit about that show and the role that kind of improv played in it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Those clips on YouTube are funny because they're from like nine or 10 years ago now. But mm. some people actually said to me, oh, you've got canned laughter because oh, nobody nice. laughs that loudly. And I'm like, no, genuinely, that we have not enhanced the laughter at all. It, it can induce a big laughs. But we're not always trying to make them laugh because the show is two hours long and it looks at, yeah, it looks at the seven ages of life starting with a baby and all the way through to me playing an old man at the end. And I, I have a range of masks to help me play different characters at different stages of life. And it's based on that Shakespeare idea of the seven ages. And yeah, towards the into the second half, I try to go for pathos as well as humor and and really explore you know the fragility of life and how lucky we are to be alive and what are we passing on to our future generations and really get people to think about bigger questions um because i think it's great just to make people laugh for the sake of laughing and that's really therapeutic but i love it when if you can somehow make the world a slightly better place not just through making people happy in the room there and then and the chemicals that induces and the sense of togetherness and that's valid in itself but i also like the idea that just maybe making people think about society and how we w interact with each other and how we can be slightly better human beings and i'm i say that for myself as much as anyone else you know we've all made huge mistakes i know i have throughout my life and um, what you can do is try and strive to be a little bit better than um, you were previously, or at least I had, that's my goal. But anyway, yes, yeah, so seven, <laughs> seven Ages is a celebration of life. I want it to first of all be fundamentally enjoyable for everyone and then secondly make them think and hmm. maybe make the world a better place, big noble goal. And some people say that's just ridiculous. You can't do that with theatre, but it's good to have ideals, good to strive towards that. And um, yeah, it came about, I used to, work in scripted theatre when I first left. I did a um, drama degree at Hull University and I wrote some plays and I was a playwright and I won a writing, the Sunday Times Playwright Award. And so I went down the writing route and I went, I got a job as a writer in residence at the Theatre Royal in Northampton for a year and a half and was writing plays for them. And some of it was going around schools, theatre and education and what have you. And, and then I worked with Keith Johnstone um, mm. just to because I was working as an actor as well as a writer I got my equity card at the rep in Northampton so I was working as an actor and writer in traditional theatre and I thought I'll do some training with Keith Johnstone because I'd read his book and thought it was great and he wrote this great book called Impro whilst and um, I'd also trained with Philip Golier and Desmond mm. Jones and all about physical theatre and I'd worked with Tressel and John Wright at Middlesex at the acting course at Middlesex um, John Wright and so I've done the physical theatre. But anyway, Keith Johnston, I was really interested in that. And I thought, oh, it'll make me a better actor and writer. And then I went to Canada and trained with him and saw his company get up on stage with no script and they improvised the whole show for two hours. And I was just blown away. And it was incredibly funny and moving. And they didn't swear. And they mm. weren't rude. And I'd only really seen British impro, which tended to be a little bit on the rude side, <laughs> and scatological. And they were telling really good stories that were really funny. And so I was like, I want to do that. And I tried and joined in and I was rubbish. And so I was like, okay, now I've got a goal <laughs> to try and get good <laughs> at what they're doing. Yeah. And it's really funny because at the time I was about 26, 27, and I could see these 18, 19, 20-year-olds, 20 21-year-olds who'd been training with Keith since they were 13, and they were amazing. And I actually thought, oh, I've missed the boat. I'm too old. I'm like, I should have started when I was a teenager, which is ridiculous now that I'm 50. And I look back and I'm like, mm. oh, what was it? So anyway, I came back to England and had my theatre company, Kapow, and we were scheduled to do a scripted play. And I wrote to the Arts Council and said, can I make 50% of it improvised? 
Mm. And the Arts Council said, yes, you can change the remit. Amazingly. So I, instead of doing a fully scripted play, I did a 50% scripted and took it to Edinburgh and it did well. And off the back of that, a producer in New Zealand saw it and said, do you want to tour New Zealand? I'll pay your flight and accommodation and a fee, and but I'll take all the ticket sales. And I was like, well, if I'm getting the flight and accommodation and a, a fee, then yeah, go for it. So I toured around New Zealand for a month performing. And um, then it just took off from there back in the UK. I just started touring it around the UK and then other countries invited me out. And that was in 2003, I think, so 20 years ago. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So it took me three years to get going from the age of 27 training with Keith to finally creating my own show and then it going to Edinburgh a couple of years in a row, actually. Yeah, for the last 20 years, I've been mostly doing improvised comedy. Mm. So... But then the last four or five years have been drifting more into back to traditional theatre and scripted mm. theatre. And... But then it's quite fun to, because my wife runs a theatre company that does straight theatre, mm. scripted, very dark. And then my company does comedy. So I employ her to do the comedy shows with me. And then she employs me to direct and act in her very dark psychological thrillers. It's actually kind of like yin, yin yeah. and yang is quite healthy psychologically, emotionally, I think. That sounds perfect. I love yeah, it. Perfect, what a perfect, perfect marriage. Yeah, it is. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> love it. <laughs> and this is not an easy question because obviously we progress in stages and sometimes it's hard to see what those things are. But when you try and think back to you, who was that person who was in Keith's workshop and you were saying that like, you felt a bit rubbish, what were some of the pieces that you think you were missing at the time that you just couldn't have known? I think the main thing was, the comedy or the improv I'd done in the UK was very much just high octane, high energy, be fast. Mm. Don't censor. Just say the first thing that comes into your head. It doesn't matter how rude or naughty or wacky. Just do anything to get a laugh and mm. instinct like a sugar hit. And then Keith said, slow down, calm down. Don't be afraid of being boring. Just be ordinary, be average. Think of the story arc, try and lure the audience mm. into a st stable world before you rock it. Um, and so it took a long time for me to just calm down and not feel this like, if they're not laughing every five seconds, I'm rubbish or failing and mm. going, it's fine if they don't laugh for several minutes, as long as you're getting them involved emotionally or intellectually or psychologically into the characters in the situation and they're investing in it, then actually there might be some really huge laughs down the line if you get them in, drawn into your world and to have the trust that the silence isn't that the audience are bored it's just they're interested and you've not really done anything particularly funny yet but that you can down the line make it funny so that was the hugest and it took time it wasn't easy i'd constantly try and panic and hit the panic button and drop the f-bomb or go rude mm anything just to get a quick laugh and Keith constantly was like slapping my wrist and like mm. and yeah so it took a while I didn't get it to begin with because in Canada it's brilliant they have these three judges sitting in the front row in black robes and wigs there's just three actors that they, they rotate the actors rotate every show so once in a while you end up playing the judge and they sit there with bicycle horns on string and if you do something rude or gross on stage they honk the bicycle horn and you have to leave the stage and so i dropped the f-bomb and i got honked and i the audience laughed but i 
had mm. to exit the stage. And I was like, but they're laughing. Why are you getting rid of me? I, surely I'm succeeding at comedy and impro. And then I got up on stage again, the next scene, and I F-bombed and I had to leave the scene halfway through. And it was frustrating. I didn't get it until I watched the Canadians be funnier than me without the mm. need to F-bomb. And I was like, okay, how are they doing that? <laughs> how are they staying so calm and not resorting to low common denominator mm. ways of jerking a laugh out of the audience? They're doing it through character. They're doing it through narrative choices. They're doing it through great use of language. It was, it was real eye-opener. Um, reduced my ego back to like that. I thought it was quite good until I went there and I was like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I love it and that you stuck with it and like you said that was the one of the reasons that I enjoyed the workshops that I took with you as well because I'm very interested in story and mm. character and world and narrative and also like I started in theatre mm. and devising and I don't um, mm. just it's not my taste I don't respond to the quick gags as an audience mm. member or a performer some people love them amazing I don't mm. I like character story development pacing all the things you've mentioned mm. and I remember even at the time you um, like diagramming out structure that you were experimenting with and I was like oh I've never seen anyone do this in improv it's not you're not just setting up a game and playing it you're, like, you're mm -hmm. actually to my to my mind on the whiteboard like drawing out what I now sort of see as story arcs and mm. different structures and I really remember that about those workshops I think it's super interesting yeah, that was a long time ago wasn't it but it I was, remember yeah. Like, yeah I was in rehearsals with a great actor called Chris John and Aliki Blythe who's now at the National Theatre doing verbatim theatre and Sophie Russell, who's now at the Globe doing Shakespeare. So mm. that was quite a room to be in, just the four of us playing around in rehearsals and learning and trying stuff out. And yeah, we created a vocabulary of, oh, you can structure different scenes in different ways. So it can start normal and then something mm. positive happens and it gets better and better and we call that a rocket. And then, Or you could start a scene normal and something bad happens and it gets worse and worse and we'd call that a slide. And, then, mm. and we came up with a, lot, a whole range of other ones so that we'd walk on stage and so that different scenes would have different structures. Otherwise, every scene is mm. most the trap to fall into, which Keith taught me was most people go for instant conflict and then just try to make it as mad or as wacky or as conflict based as possible. And every, if you're trying to do a two hour show that gets mm. really boring, if, if you're doing eight or nine or 10 scenes and they've all got exactly the same structure, it gets really repetitive after a while. So. That's why we came up with the different structures to keep an audience interested because our shows are quite episodic. We tend to do eight disconnect, seven or eight dif disconnected stories. So we need to give them different structures and rhythms. Mm. Um, a bit like a variety show, you know, like the old, and I suppose like Brit Britain's Got Talent works on the same principle of you have a dance show, it's followed by a solo singer, followed by acrobats, and it keeps you interested, the variety. And so which my company's trying to do that within the format of improvising theatre. Mm. I love that. And you've mentioned um, Keith Johnston. Are there any other comedy creators or resources or inputs that you've had that you feel have really been pivotal to your development? So obviously you've had such an amazing career. Wow, thank you. It's so kind of you. Um, I loved, when I was little, I loved like Harold Lloyd and Charlie Chaplin and Laurel and mm. Hardy. I couldn't get an, and Buster Keaton slightly later. And, couldn't get enough of them just learned tons by watching them and then when i started doing it at drama school john wright at middlesex university mm. was brilliant at 
teaching me how to free up and be very creative. That was so useful training with him. I followed him. I was his assistant for about two, three years, and I sort of traveled around the world with him being his assistant, working on different projects. And um, so he was very useful, beneficial. Obviously, Keith, massive. Um, and then I'd just read a lot. So, I, like, I remember reading Ken Dodd's mm. autobiography and... Um, yeah, just watching. I love. I mean, even when I was growing up, even like Heidi High, Alo Alo, yeah. Dad's yeah. Army. Like, I loved all that. That you can, because you can. You, I'm learning all the time and watching, and then going to the theatre and watching Eightborn and John Godber in the nineties, mm. and um, and then obviously more up to date, Ricky Gervais in the early two mm. thousands, and um, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I think if you've got an interest in comedy. And then there was a time when I was going to the Edinburgh Festival every year and performing, and I would just use every spare hour to go watch other people perform and just admire different people's skills and, and then try and, try and learn. And also, like, if things aren't working, go, why are they, why is that not connecting with me or the people mm. around me? And trying to analyze it. That's what Keith was really good at, is really helping anyone who worked with him analyze it. And he gave us a vocabulary as well of, oh, it's because they, sidetracked or they cancelled or oh that's funny because they reincorporated or called something mm. back or oh that's because it's a taboo talk you know, i don't know it's just fascinating the way he yeah oh they wimped so that's not very funny oh they were really specific so that was funny and, and just different words like wimp bridge hedge all mm. this terminology he comes up with which people can read in keith johnstone's books like impro and impro for storytellers i always recommend those two books are pretty much above any other book on creativity and comedy. And then there's Truth in Comedy by Del Close. That's it's worth mm, a read. I don't know that one. Yeah, Truth in Comedy, Del Close. He set up Impro in um, America in a, a format called The Herald, which is very big in America. The sad thing is in the Impro world, you get people that, oh, I'm a Keith Johnstonian or I'm a mm. Del Close. And then they almost like, it's almost like religions, isn't it? And then you get mm. frack. The people's front of Judea, the the all the rest of you know, the way the Monty Python ridiculed how religions just fracture and fracture and fracture, and it's mm. this something starting to happen in the impro world a bit. There's these little cliques, and it's silly really because we're all just trying to be creative and yeah. And and I personal like my own learning philosophy is to learn from like everything possible. That's why with this podcast, it's every anyone who's making comedy in any form, whether it's to do with memoir or linguistics mm. or film or life mm. theatre, there's so much to be learned, I think, from other forms. And mm. I don't particularly like things when they really bore. I mean, it can be useful to have that philosophy. Like where I, I trained, you, you trained at Golier, I trained at Lecoq, and people would joke mm. that they were kind of rivals because they were both in France. It's like, that's just silly. They're both two brilliant people forming schools, mm. and there's so much to be learned from everyone. So I love that you have that approach where you have kind of just watch and learn. From yeah, I, remember John, I remember John Wright saying, like, yeah, you can go to one school and just do mm. Meisner or just do Golia or just do... But he, I remember John Wright saying it's better to have, a, like, a patchwork quilt mm. of training. And I, I like... Yeah, so I'm a big fan of just borrowing what, from different schools of thought. And, yeah. yeah, that made sense. And um, that's great that you're saying about their language that's around analysis. So I did want to ask you about feedback because you also have this perspective of being a dramaturg and a director as well. What mm. have you learned about giving feedback um, for watching other people's work, for when it's working, when it's not working? Because it's a whole skill set in itself and uh, it can be really hard to do yeah. effectively. Gosh, that's quite a deep question. Like, um, yeah, I, I know. I it's quite, one, thing, one, one thing Keith taught me is 
Like, don't overdwell on the negatives because if something's mm. not working, it will drop away anyway. So focus on the positives. Um, sometimes with comedy, definitely I've learned that if something's working, try not to point it out to the actors or mm. analyze it or go, oh, it's funny because of this or it's really good when you do that. That's almost, I found, just guaranteed to mess them up because then they be step outside themselves and they, or they become aware or they become, or they try and then they try and fix it and horror. Yeah, so if something's going well, I try not to even mention it because <laughs> I just want them to just keep doing what they're doing if yeah. I'm directing a show. So 90% of my notes tend to be constructive criticism, which I know sometimes, but then you have to be aware that actors, we're all do deeply in need of support and encouragement and confidence as well. So it's the classic thing, isn't it? That I often remember now, I think that phrase, a shit sandwich can be quite useful. So start off with, if giving notes after a show, point out some positive things, then they go, okay, the director's happy. I did a good job. Mm. Then say even better if maybe this or maybe that, and then to not leave them with a crappy feeling, end with something positive as well. So mm. positive, negative, positive. I, I tend to do that in workshops as well when I'm teaching is positive, negative, because then people are more open to the negative criticism or the constructive criticism in the middle if you've pointed out some good things either side of that. Mm. People's, you know, confidence and egos and is quite naturally fragile. I mean, it's such, I have huge admiration for anyone who gets up in a workshop, let alone in front of a paying audience. And maybe that's because I still perform as well. Mm. I know what it's like. So I'm very aware of acting is a lot about confidence and comedy is a lot about confidence. So I don't want to do anything that's going to damage that and undermine the people I'm trying to help. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. That's, that's kind of like, not everyone has that approach. <laughs> some people no, don't. Be, some people I trained with uh, feel like the opposite. Uh, but well, I'm yeah, more on like, your side. Yeah. Well, like when I trained with Golia, I mean, I must admit, mm. he, I did find him funny, and like he was brutal. I mean, he, he mm. very rarely praised, and regularly people would end up crying in his lessons. And normally on mm. any course, I mean, I did, I did about a year's training with him, and. But he did them in modules, so he did like neutral mask and then clown mm. and play and melodrama. Every course, two or three people dropped out, having cried several days in a row. Mm. But then I, whenever he was rude about me or – maybe it's because I've done a lot of sport, a lot of rugby and football and cricket. So I've been used to sports coaches in the 80s and 90s being quite brutal and, mm. you know, like the Brian Clough, Nottingham Forest manager, quite just direct, just if you're rubbish, you're told you're rubbish. So it didn't – bother me that he was quite rude hmm. I mean, was, was he rude or was he just being really honest and wasn't sugarcoating it and hmm. I just think it's a gift and I mean it's an offer he's offering you if he's telling you you're rubbish then at least he's honest and so <laughs> <laughs> and then hopefully you can get and he, I think he's trying to destroy any ego and he's trying to hmm. make you vulnerable and he's trying to yeah so didn't bother me but I but I'm not a huge fan of the the, the old drama school philosophy of knock them down and destroy them and then mm. build them up again. That that kind of old school drama acting training, I'm not a big fan of either. I think that's a bit outdated now. And, and I've seen a lot of actors be come out of drama school and they're just damaged by it because mm. they tend not to be rebuilt in time for when they mm. graduate. And so that's not too clever either. No, no, mm. I, I agree. And um, I'm just all for the more people 
being able to do things that they enjoy creatively, the better. So I don't, I don't really like any snobbery around things, any things like you say, if people are coming to training, they're there because they want to get better. But in general, um, I'm just not a fan of shutting down people's creativity. So it's, no, it's and that actually, balance. And to give Gurley a credit, he said a, a lot of the time he'd emphasize pleasure and you've got to be having fun on stage. Mm. You've got to be having fun with your, your fellow colleagues. And so often his, bluntness was with a little twinkle in the eye as well so and I think that sense of having pleasure in being creative Mm. is so important isn't it I think it can that's definitely Keith was a big fan of that as well the more fun you're having the more that releases your creativity I think on average Mm. Um, and are you able to bring that to um your work when you're writing as well because you said that you started in writing Mm. what's that process like for you compared to being in a room working with others sort of up on your feet Writing's different, isn't it? I mean, mm. yeah, I used to really find writing hard. It was kind of like, an, I don't know, everyone, it would have, I felt like, an, I'm sure a lot of writers like this, I felt this, just this strong urge to, I just had to write. But it's often like a bit like, sometimes it was fun, but sometimes it was like vomiting. Like you feel better afterwards, but it was quite hard at the time. And mm. then other times you get in a flow and you're like, but then sometimes you'd read stuff back the next day and you'd be like, that's rubbish. And so it, and then lack of sleep because sometimes I'd be writing at two, three in the morning. I'd got most of my ideas at night time, so that's not too clever in the long run because then you're getting really tired as well. So I found writing tortuous. Um, and strangely, winning the Sunday Times Playwright Award when I was nineteen, then I put pressure on myself that everything had to be as good as what I'd just written. And I remember getting my first negative review, having had loads of positive reviews and this lovely award, going to Edinburgh and getting slaughtered. And and I remember sitting on a wall just crying <laughs> and crying and crying. It's, yeah, being an, an artist, it, you put yourself on the line, don't you, a lot. Mm. I think that's one thing that even a 50-year-old now, I think sometimes critics, you get a real range of critics some of them like Lynn Gardner or Libby Purvis are wonderfully sensitive to, even when they're giving a negative review, they're very aware that you are a human being. And then, mm. and they always, then you get some other critics naming none. Oh, I'd love to name some. <laughs> seem to be serving their ego and more than helping the reader or help being aware of the artist as a human being. You know, they're more just trying to, they write some really scathing reviews of people and really quite nasty and vicious. And you go, is that really the best way to go about being a theatre reviewer? Yeah. yeah. So you put your neck on the line, don't you? But it reminds me of that um, poem about in the arena. I don't know. Mm. Do you know that the arena one where? Yeah. I don't know who it's by, but I've heard Brené Brown quote it. I think think we talk about the same one, but. To, to paraphrase it, like it, it's the person in the arena and like who's getting all the dust and the, I'm destroying the poem now, but all the dust and the mug and what they're, they're the ones, not the one who's standing on the outside, just the not cold in the fight. souls on the outside, yeah. standing on the outside going, Oh, you're doing it wrong. You should do yeah. this, you do that. That's the easy, anyone can do that on the outside and just judge it. But yes, yeah, the people in the arena with the sweat and the dirt and the blood that are taking the risk, they're the real heroes yeah I think somebody's accredited it to roosevelt i think one time but i'm not sure whether mm. it was roosevelt or not but Ooh, I'm, I'll, I'm wanting, I'll I'm wanting to google it, google it this now and we'll find we'll find out <laughs> amazing yeah. and i want to but whenever ask i get about, a bad um, review i always go back and read that do you yeah 
Yeah, it still hurts, doesn't it? So um, I'd love yep. to ask you about um, physical theatre, physical comedy. You've mentioned some of the um, performers that you used to watch uh, when you were growing up and also like the Gaudier trainings, really physical. What else do you think has helped you um, with that physicality? Because obviously there's, there's so many different kinds of, of training, but like to be able to make the masks work in the way that you do, it does require mm. a particular skill set. What's, what's helped you um, be a physical comedian, do you think? I think it helped, helped when I was younger that I'd done a lot of sport. Mm. So I did a hell of a lot of sport. I didn't really want to be an actor in theatre. I just wanted to be a sportsman. So I loved cricket and rugby and golf and tennis and football. I did everything for my school and um, played American football for Great Britain under-19s. And did you? Went, yeah, I went off to America and played for Great Britain under-19s against this team in Chicago That's and ended so up on American cool. Yeah, it was amazing. It was brilliant. It was immense fun. And my local team in Northampton, we were British champions. And even though I was short, I was like five foot five. I was one of the shortest on the team, but I was the captain and I was, yeah, and I got selected for the Great Britain team. It was immense fun. And then I fractured my spine in a game Oof. and nearly ended up like Christopher Reeve, you know, the mm. guy who played Superman, paralyzed from the neck down. My doctor said I was really lucky if my head had been a bit lower. Mm. I'd have totally severed everything and been in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. And after I got over the shock of that and I had to stop playing, that's when I really got into acting and theatre more and left the sport behind. But I think that, having done it for years, I think that gave me physical coordination mm. and good balance. And so that helped with masks and clowning. And then John Wright was great. I learned a hell of a lot from him. I did so many of his workshops. And, you know, he'd do like two days in Kendall at the at a festival and I'd go up and just do stay in a and b and do the two days with him. And then he'd do a, a week at the Battersea Arts Centre and I'd go and do that with him. And I just kind of followed him around like a puppy dog for quite a long time, a couple of years, just trying to do as many workshops with him as possible, as well as training with him at Middlesex. And um, so he was a huge help. Um, and then in the workshops, like watching other people, watching what works, watching what doesn't work. And, and then, in every workshop, writing down as many notes. I did a workshop with Clive Barker, the mm. guy that wrote theatre games. You know, I did a week with him. Um, went to the Desmond Jones School of Mime and Physical Theatre for six months and trained with him. And but every, I made sure that every lunchtime I wrote down everything as much as I can remember. And then in the evening, because I knew that if I didn't, I'd forget it in a day or two. And um. I think that helped. I think the main things I realized early on were work with really good people mm. and write down what you're learning so that your learning curve is steeper. You get further quicker and keep saying, get up, keep getting up. Even though, you know, when they go two volunteers, please, even if when you're really nervous, just get up and try it. Try not mm. to get up too much and not to piss off the other people in the workshop. But don't be too timid either because you've got to get up and fail and fail and, and then have a success and then fail again. And then, so yeah, work with really good people, take lots of notes and then just keep getting up and taking risks and think over time and then really analyze and start, watch other people. Don't be in a bubble. Don't just sit there dwelling on what you did, but try and spot what they're doing. What are they doing with their feet? What are they doing with mm. their hands? <laughs> Why was that funny? And, and then practice at home sometimes. I love yeah. that. And again, now you've mentioned the sports element as well. Like I can, that like you do 
have like this um extreme openness to training and improving mm. um and like mm. and you can see that like because not, it's probably usual to you but i don't think everybody does i think mm. um some people it, it peaks at a certain level and then they still have their career in productions but you've had so many different inputs you could have just done the Goliath and not done the Desmond mm. Jones or whatever so I think that's really interesting mm. and I'd love to know for where you are in your career right now you've just had this really successful run I've been seeing some of the reviews on Twitter incredible reviews for you as you look forward do you know what you want to be doing next and and how far can you see into the future in terms of things that you'd still love to take on as challenges you it's might be like, no, one. I just need a nap. I'm quite tired after this brilliant run. <laughs> so, if you'd asked me three days ago, definitely yeah. I just needed my bed for three yeah. days. I was yeah. exhausted because I directed it and I was in it. I had a small part in it and I was producing it. Um, it was full on. And we were doing eight shows a week. So um, it's funny because just before lockdown, I, had, um, I was diagnosed with bladder cancer. Mm. And we didn't, I didn't know if it was going to be terminal or not. So that was very scary. So I was rushed in for emergency surgery and they cut it out and they found out that it was luckily low grade. They got it early, hadn't gone through the bladder wall into my lymph system and that I potentially could have many decades of life instead of two or three, which I, at one point it looked like I was going to. So, I mean, there's a 33% chance it will come back within five years. So I'm very aware that I've got a one in three chance. And they, but then they said they'll cut it out again. and. But that's physically um, taken its toll on me, this, you know, the, the operation and the chemo. Plus, I broke my ankle many years ago, and that didn't heal. The operation went wrong when they operated on it, so they had to reoperate on it. And I've been left with a kind of reduced movement and continual pain in my ankle. So talking about physical comedy, that's mm. – and then because of that, I had to stop playing football, Sunday league football. And so then I put on weight. And so that's – these have a big impact on my physical performance, especially physical theater and comedy. So I can't be as physically goofy and as wild. And um, so I'm trying to keep my weight down so that when mm. I put different masks on, I can still transform and become different characters. Otherwise, all my characters are going to be overweight, little round, rotund characters. Do you know what I mean? Which great. They can all be family members, mm. but it's not ideal. So I'm um, trying to keep my weight down, trying to get healthy, trying to eat better. Um, but it's made me think, oh, I need to focus more on verbal humor as well now, mm. not just physical. So it's, it's, and also the the health scare and the recovery and the lockdown has just made me so grateful that I, I'm trying not to think too far ahead and I'm just yeah. grateful for anything. And I'm just enjoying being alive and being creative. Having said that, you know, my wife and I talk about different projects that we've got lined up. So we are writing a couple of new plays and mm. I want to devise a brand new mask physical theatre show that I've started mulling over in. I got my masks out a couple of days ago after I'd had a big sleep after yeah. our show ended on Saturday and on um, got the masks out and started playing with them. And Because it, it was like so refreshing because I've, I've been playing a complete psychopath in Abby's play that beats up his girlfriend. And yeah. he's a real horrible character. So it's so nice to put on these funny, goofy masks and think about doing comedy again. So, yeah, I'm excited to create a new mask show. Um, but I'm aware it's going to take time. I think that's the main thing I've learned now as well is not to rush mm. to put in stuff on in London, especially because you can get savaged by the critics and you're up against like the the Royal Court, the National Theatre, that these companies that have 
got immense resources and they can do weeks of R&D and then they can try it out in this space for this amount of time. And sometimes when they eventually get their shows on in front of the critics, and they've been working on it for a year or two and really honed it. And so and we haven't got the financial resources or the space. So, But we still want to do quality work, not necessarily quantity. So we've got to just give ourselves permission to do more R&D and take our time and so that when we put something in front of the audience, it's worth their while and it's worth their money and time because I'm very aware that time and money is very precious in any country at any time, but even more in cost of living crisis. And so I want when people come to the theatre, I want it to be as meaningful and nourishing as possible. So in order for that to happen, we've got to put the time and the effort in to make it as good as possible. And I think in the past I've rushed a bit, so I'm going to take my time. I think that sounds incredibly wise. I feel like we've come full circle from the the like micro slowdown in the scene to the slowdown in the bigger picture. Oh, you're good. <laughs> you're very is... good. Yeah, I did that. It was deliberate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, mm. oh, but no, but that in all seriousness, though, um, yeah, I mean, I just remember as well running a theater company and and often for budgets things would be i find it so frustrating sometimes like it can be really fun at first to make a show in a week to make a show in three weeks to make sure it's like the exhilaration yeah. and we pulled it off and nearly have a nervous breakdown but we're okay <laughs> but there comes a point where it's just like you say in terms of the quality that it can be quite frustrating and as you say when there are so many other um people can deploy more resources and have that developmental time the same as um you know we we're hearing about it from all different angles with the writer's strike at the minute, how important the developmental time is for their different writer's rooms and those different inputs. So mm. uh, I think that's um, very wise. And I think it's extraordinary that even three days after your show, you've already got ideas percolating and got your mask out. It might be slow for you, but for <laughs> the rest of us might be feeling like slouches right now. So I tip my hat to you for sure. <laughs> well, let's so, see. Let's see. It might not come to fruition until 2025. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> no, but that's, that's brilliant. And thank you for um, sharing as generously as you have today. I've learned so much. So any um, parting advice to listeners who are fellow writers, creatives, comedy lovers who are doing their best to make work right now? Um, I think one of the best things I tr I've learned now, now that in my 50 years on this planet, is I try and think to myself, what type of show would I like to sit and watch? Mm. It's very easy to go, oh, what do the critics want? Or what does this audience want? Or that audience? Or that venue? But actually, when I'm writing, creating now, I go, what do I, when I go to the theatre, what do I crave? What do I want to see? And um, so... I'm always trying to put myself in the, imagining myself in the audience watching my show and how can I make it as entertaining as possible? And I suppose there was one other thing and now it's just gone out of my mind. Oh, heck, I had another, um, what was it? Um, it's gone. Oh, that's okay. Oh. That's the, the fleeting nature of live conversations. But I but I love that as a, a sentiment. And I kind of make this podcast to be able to make the podcast that I want to listen to that's quite nerdy about comedy and um, digs into all the questions. And I'm writing in fiction the things I want to. Has it come back to you? It's come back to me. Thank you. Tell you me. feel brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Um, when creating a show, when I I was working in traditional rep and had a steady job and I went freelance and set up my own theatre company and decided to produce my own work and that's quite scary and um, one of the best things that was ever said to me was what's your USP what is your unique selling point try and find out 
try to step outside yourself and see what have you got that will make yeah what's your unique selling point and so for mine it was combining masks and impro to and then a bit of shakespeare i was like mm. nobody else is doing that impro plus masks plus shakespeare so that created a unique product that and then the, there was a gap in the market that i found and so um I think that's quite useful. It's a horribly like business school talk, but I do think it's useful to think what is your USP as well, um, or what's the hook? What what are you offering yeah. the world? But I love that because we do like it is a business as well. If you want to survive, or if that's where you want to make your money um, financially, like I, I don't mind whether people do it for money or not. Like I, I don't mm. care, amateur professional. But if if it is to support a career and all the things that go with that financially, it is a business too. And also the flip side of that, like I think it's fun to think of like that unique, like what's uniquely you, what can only mm. you write, only you bring. That's awesome. I love it. Oh, good. I'm so, glad it's for you. <laughs> yeah. So where should people go to find out more about you and your work? Um, my third company that I co-set up with Paul Jenkins 30 years ago is Kapow, K-E-P-O-W, kapowtheatre.co.uk. Um, I personally am on Twitter and Facebook, um, so showing my age because I'm not on Instagram and Snapchat, which my daughters in their 20s are. So, uh, um, no worries. Yeah, I, although I've been reading recently about Facebook and how – their ethics, and I'm starting to question whether that is a good platform. It's lovely, brilliant for getting back in touch with people I haven't seen for ages, but I don't know. It's just, mm, I'm, I've been reading some articles by whistleblowers who've worked inside Facebook, and um, so I'm getting. getting so don't don't go about. and find Kevin on Facebook. Go find him no. on Twitter instead, and his website. What the hell is Elon Musk doing as well with Twitter? It's like, how do we communicate nowadays? It's like, oh go find uh, Kevin. Send a carrier pigeon to his house <laughs> <laughs> with a note yes. that says, "You're awesome." Keep Let's going. Put my we phone number up on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> but great. But in, I'll put those. Um, I will put the links to um, website and those things in the show notes, yeah. so people can can find you legitimately awesome thank, thank you, you so much for your time kevin i really appreciate it thank you i'm getting darker and darker the yeah. sun is <laughs> it's moody it's gonna be a black screen in a minute i'm gonna be just a, a voice and... thank you awesome. it's been immense fun talking to you amazing